All right, should we do this? This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Elixir Sips. Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. In two short screencasts each week, between 5 and 15 minutes, Elixir Sips currently consists of over 16 hours of densely packed videos in more than 100 episodes, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert Rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11. Elixir Sips. Learn Elixir with a pro. Find out more at elixirsips.com. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Let's face it, there are a lot of things about being an entrepreneur that we all hate. One of the things that I really hate is bookkeeping. Less Accounting has just started a new service where you can get your bookkeeping done for a really low cost each month. If you're interested, go to freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping to go check it out. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 158 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Reuven Lerner. Hi, everyone. Eric Davis. Hey. Jonathan Stark. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to remind you really quickly, if you're into Ruby, go check out Ruby Remote Conf. That's rubyremoteconf.com. I'm pulling together the conference. I've invited a bunch of people to come speak. It should be awesome. Uh, We also have a special guest this week, and that's Alex Hillman. Hey, everybody. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. Uh, as you already said, my name is Alex Hillman. Um, I've got sort of a whole list of things I could use to describe myself. Perhaps the thing most relevant to today's conversation is I'm the uh, co-founder of one of the longest running co-working spaces in the world here in Philadelphia called Indie Hall, I-N-D-Y-H-A-L-L dot org or Indie Hall on Twitter if you want to check that out. But my background's in freelancing. I started Indie Hall as a freelancer. Uh, I work also with uh, Amy Hoy, who's got a uh, awesome blog called unicornfree.com. And together we teach a class called 30 by 500, which is largely geared towards freelancers, helping them turn uh, their sort of like hourly rate approach into maybe the product building side of things and what changes in terms of marketing and things like that. So I've got my fingers in all kinds of things related to freelancers. <laughs> Very cool. Well, we brought you on today to talk about collaboration. It's, it's really interesting because uh, when I think about collaborations, I'm thinking about people that don't do what I do that I'm going to work with. Yeah. Is, is that generally what you're talking about? Or are you talking about other freelancers to help you with projects that are what you do? Well, so actually, my personal philosophy on collaboration has a lot less to do with the work, with the specific project itself. And it's actually a big sort of foundation idea of what makes Indie Hall as a co-working space unique. So when I think about collaboration, I'm not necessarily thinking about I need to complete a project. And if I don't have this other person uh, who can do a skill that I can't on board, then the project is screwed. Although that's tactically true sometimes. When I'm thinking about collaboration, I think about it in terms of what can I do with another person 
that we couldn't do on our own. And maybe that's a nuanced difference, but for me, it's more about working with another person and having them bring something to the, pro- to the project, uh, their, their interest, their perspective, uh, in addition to the fact that, yeah, there's some things that need to get done. Um, but ultimately, I want them to be on that project, uh, not just because it's a project to do, but because it's a project that interests them as much as it interests me. So you mentioned you have a co-working space. I mean, I've been to a few co-working spaces, but I've never worked worked at anyone before. Isn't it a typical thing that they do, collaboration? Although, I mean, to be honest, often what I see is just a lot of people working at desks. And again, I've just been a visitor rather than an actual participant. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good question. And when you think about co-working and for the the listeners out there, if you've been to a co-working space, your experience can really be very varied. And even in the best co-working spaces, it's sort of uh, you know, the d- different composition of people there on a different day. So what's happening that day changes from day to day. I think the key that makes co-working sort of a, a unique perspective, and maybe if we like back up a little bit and talk about how I was working with people that even led me to consider wanting a co-working space was it, it was very much sort of like a distributed agency model sort of thing where I was a freelancer. I was a web developer and I knew that the limitations of what I could do were based on the skills that I had. So I had to either go out and learn new things or collaborate with other people. But well, who, when you're a freelancer, who do you collaborate with? Well, in my case, it was with people that I already knew. I think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily have at their fingertips is people who they already know, they already have some trust established with, uh, maybe through working together at other companies or on other projects. Um, that pre-existing trust, that understanding of, not, yes, you've got the skills on paper, but are you actually good to work with? That's a hard thing to come by while you're doing the work. It's hard to build a trusting relationship with somebody while the project is going on. So one of the things that a co-working space is really great at, and a thing that I think not enough people approach co-working spaces intending to do, is to get to know people long before you ever need to collaborate with them. If the first time you're talking to somebody is when you need something from them that they have, you're, you're kind of too late. Uh, versus if I know that there's a great graphic designer in the room, but I also know that I really like spending time with them and I've seen them do really amazing work and I've seen they've got amazing work ethic and they really care about their clients and delivering an awesome product. That's a person that I want to collaborate with, not just because they're talented, but because they it's sort of like the best job interview you could possibly imagine. Uh, people put their best foot forward when they know they're being interviewed. Working in a co-working space is an opportunity to observe people around you who do things that are different from you and learn from them. Maybe you never work with them, but you learn how they work. You learn uh, how they solve problems. They can help you with a tactical thing like, I don't know how to serve this particular an error in my code or this design layout issue or a copywriting help. Or maybe they're in a completely different field like... I need the assistance of an attorney to help me think through a contract or something like that. These are all things that you generally don't think about until the very last minute when you need them. But when you're in a co-working community and you've taken the time to get to know people long before you need them, it starts to make some of the harder parts of being a freelancer sort of vanish. It really can feel kind of magical. And it's one of the things that I know that once in a while I step outside of my little happy universe of Indie Hall and realize that I've forgotten how hard business can be for a lot of people that are independent and solo because they're not surrounded by people that they already know and trust who they could turn to for help 
at any scale, small or large. So a co-working space, yeah, there's people sitting at desks next to each other. And frankly, for the folks that are in the business of running a co-working space, if that's all that's happening, if there's no interaction in between people getting their work done, you're not really delivering a lot of value. And if you pay for a co-working space and that's all you do is you come in, you put on your headphones, you sit down, you work and you don't talk to anybody, you're not getting the value out of the thing you pay for, which is the other people in the room, what they do, what they have done, what they know, what they care about, their interest, their time and attention. All of those things are valuable resources for independents and freelancers when you're working in a co-working space. It's funny, there's a, there's a co-working space that opened not too far from me uh, in Modi'in, Israel, like between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And like we're, we're a pretty quiet, perhaps too quiet suburban community. So it's nice that it exists. And I've been working from home for many years, and now they have all these different memberships. Now, I mean, like, we have one car, it's not walking distance, not public transportation. It would really be a pain to get there. But then I saw recently they're offering now cheaper membership if you want to go there on evenings and weekends. Aha. And <laughs> now, it's an interesting idea, although, quite frankly, like, you know, I can just sort of close the door. But I think that actually it would not provide any of the benefits you're describing. Because nights and weekends, like, I think it's going to be relatively dead, and they're just looking to make make a bit of extra money. So like, they might get it in terms of their bottom line, but I sort of doubt, and maybe I'm totally wrong, you're sort of doubt that there'll really be that sort of interaction collaboration that you're talking about. So, I mean, it's tough to say. What I can say is that if there's not a, I mean, look, it doesn't take a lot of people for there to be value in that sort of thing. We run uh, one night a week. We stay open late for what we call night owls. And it's not an extra fee. Actually, it's included in all of our membership levels, including our lower cost, which includes our membership that we have that just includes one day a month. So for $30 a month, you can come in and work for one work day, uh, but you can also come in every single Thursday that month from 6 to 10 and get some work done. I'll tell you what the hard part is, though, and I think people often underestimate, I guess is the word I'm looking for, is it takes time for people to consistently show up or for there to be a group of people who show up often enough for it to feel like that room is not empty. So that concern mm-hmm. you're, th- you're thinking about, I think you're right on the money. You're worried about the right thing, which is if I'm coming there after hours, who the heck's going to be there? The audience that's there, the people that are there might be different. They might not be freelancers. Although there's people who, uh, I put myself in this category, I like working in sort of the, the afternoon to the evening shift. Mornings I like to take a little bit easy. More commonly, it's people who maybe they have a, a day job that requires them to be on site or they just have a company that requires them to be on site. And they use the evening to focus on something a little bit different, either a side project, a passion project, something that they do want to do out in the open and collaboratively and be able to share with others and be inspired and things like that. The question is really, is this co-working space doing anything to actively facilitate that? Or are they saying you can work after hours, in which case you may be correct? And there's also the, the fact that co-working, like, I don't know, have any, have any of you guys on the call been to a bar camp? conference have you been to one of these or an unconference yeah i have okay there's been like a track for it but not a full conference around it aha okay so the thing that i love about unconferences and bar camps and what they have in common with co-working is they do require a bit of facilitation however if you're not getting anything out of it there's a good chance it's because you didn't put anything into it 
it's not a sit back and let it wash over you kind of experience. And co-working is very much the same thing. So if you're going to a co-working space, you know, again, as a freelancer, as someone who is looking to meet people, and the first thing you do is sit down and, and don't talk to anybody, you're contributing to the problem, not helping solve it. For some people, that's a lot tougher to get up the courage to go introduce yourself to a stranger. Um, but remember that everyone that's there, hopefully, is there for the same reason you are, which is it's kind of lonely at home. And maybe it's been a while since I've been out and, and interactive with other professional people, and I would like that experience. So you know, after hours isn't inherently a less collaborative experience simply because it's after work hours. In some cases, it can be even more so because it's sort of time where people are a little more willing to be uh, socially lubricated and, <laughs> and have those interactions because they don't feel like the pressure of, well, I've got X amount of work to get done during the day before I can go, you know, do whatever I have plans to do this evening. Uh, it really depends on who's in the room, though. That's the biggest difference. So I would say go and find out who's in the room and and maybe let yourself be pleasantly surprised. Uh, that's one of the things that I think the people who go in, whether it's during the day or in the evening, go into a co-working space with a very specific thing that you want to get out of it, including like we have people who show up saying, you know, I'm starting a company. I need to hire a freelancer who does graphic design or I need to hire a freelance Ruby developer, whatever it is. And we tell them straight up, like, it's not that that person's not here. In fact, I can fairly certainly say a person who you could hire is in the room. However, this is not a, this is not a talent agency. Um, and this is certainly not sh like shooting fish in a barrel. You're going to have to put in some time to get to know people. And if the first impression you make is, Hey, I want to hire you. Believe it or not, everyone here is, is here because they're busy. <laughs> they're here to get work done, not to be solicited for work. So there's a fine line to walk. <laughs> and the best thing you can do is sit down next to somebody with work of your own to do. And when you get up to take away, go get a, a break, go get a glass of water, go get a cup of coffee, a snack, just get up, walk around the block, uh, walk around the room, change scenery. In those moments, go out of your way to meet someone that you haven't met before or look for a friend and, and say hello and see how they're doing. Um, those are the kinds of interactions that a co-working space makes easier than if everyone was sitting at home by themselves or even in a cafe, right? You can't really turn to someone in a cafe and say, hey, do you know anything about, you know, uh, Active Record or can you help me, you know, just, just like proofread this copywriting? They're going to look at you like you've got 10 heads. I even if they could help you, that's a weird interaction. They're not there to help you. They're there to you usually put on headphones and get out of their house. Whereas a co-working space is a place that people are actively choosing to go to be around other people. And it's totally normal for a stranger to say, hey, we haven't met before. I'm Alex. I'm working on this thing. Would you mind just even talking something through with me? That sounds like it could be a strange interaction, but it's amazing how easy it is when you know that it's sort of a, a cultural norm of the people that are in the room. Is there a way to set that as a cultural norm? Because most of the time when I hear people talk about co-working spaces, it's much more along the lines of what Reuven was talking about, where it's like, there are certain distractions at home that I want to avoid at work, and so I'm going to go work at a place that's set aside for work. So that kind of interaction, it can happen organically, but some people are really there to get away from that. 
Yeah, yeah, and and a very fine line to walk. I've seen co-working spaces actually go too far in the other direction where they sort of over-program it with social events and end up being just as, if not more, distracting from, you know, if, if you're trading off my laundry or walking the dog for an hour and a half long or two hour long lunch break with somebody because I enjoyed that conversation, uh, you may be able to argue well, at least it was a conversation about something related to work, but it's, it's not really that much better. I would say that really being thoughtful about the kinds of events and experiences that you can create for people to choose, doing lots of small scale things that are way less disruptive. We don't do a lot of formal events at Indie Hall, which I think is something that is a little bit different from other co-working spaces where they host lots of outside groups and meetups. Uh, and things like that. I think that stuff can be very distracting unless you have a dedicated private space for it. So when we do things like that, we generally do them you know, nearby, off-site. Uh, maybe we'll go to a bar or restaurant nearby or we will do a big social event in another event space nearby. Just because we have the space of our own, we doesn't mean we have to do everything there. And sometimes I have to remind our team and our members, just because we have this space doesn't mean it's a space for everything. It is a place to work. A lot of things that we do in this space are, you know, I like to think about choice architecture is a, is a thing that I'm really fascinated by. And I'll give you one tiny little example that makes a huge difference in those little social interactions. Uh, and that's how we actually lay out the workspace itself. We set up the workspace in these sort of small clusters of desks, generally between three and six desks. And the reason for that is less than three desks together, it's very easy to end up sitting by yourself, which again, kind of defeats the purpose and larger than six desks. And it sort of turns into like a last supper kind of dinner where everybody sort of blends <laughs> into, uh, into the scene. And it's easy once again, to sort of vanish into the room. And that first thing I talked about where it's easy to sit by yourself. Again, people are choosing to go to a co-working space to be around other people, whether they're talking to them or not. And I like to describe this as sort of the elevator effect. When you get into an elevator by yourself and you stand, you know, dead center in the middle, or maybe you've got your favorite corner, whatever it is. And the second another person walks into the elevator on another floor, you both instantly and instinctively go to opposite corners of a four foot by four foot square room. <laughs> and it's a, a personal space issue and sort of like a natural response. And what's interesting is when people come to a co-working space, they walk into Indie Hall, they take a tour and they say, I'm here because working at home has gotten really lonely and, and the loneliness has become distracting. I do need other people around in order to be productive. I have work to do, but I do want to get to know other people. And the first thing they do is they go find a corner to sit in by themselves. And then they wonder why they haven't met anybody. So we try and design it so it's easier for people to do the thing that they say they want to do versus choose a default that is the path of least resistance, which is I don't have to talk to anybody. So I'm going to go sit in the corner or I'm going to go sit in the corner. So I don't have to talk to anybody. There's another thing that we've done, though, to really help instill that culture that we were talking about before. And that's you'll see in a lot of co-working spaces, they sort of separate the full-time members from those flex members, the people that are there less often. They'll create an area of the office that is maybe able to be closed and locked off because it's got people's you know, computers and electronics and things like that. And so they, they say, well, this is where full-time members go because uh, it's where we can lock and keep us secure because we have all of these events after hours and that has strangers coming through this space. And again, there's a bunch of reasons why lots of after-hours events actually is, can be more damaging than good. And then they create these other sort of basically where the event space would be in the evening 
During the day, they've got tables that can be collapsed or moved out of the way. They're on wheels. Sort of the flexible common space doubles as the event space. And so you've got the people that are there just, you know, either they're visiting for the day or they're on a, a membership where they're there once a month, once a week, a couple days a week in that sort of cafe open area. And then you've got all the full-time members clustered away in a completely different part of the co-working space. And I think that that sucks for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is it, is it reinforces the ease of staying separated from one another. And so what we've actually done is all of those clusters of three to six desks are mixed full-time and flex desks. Our full-time desks are a darker colored surface. All of our flex desks are a lighter colored surface. And so it makes it this cool kind of checkerboard looking layout uh, across both of the floors of Indie Hall. But here's what's beautiful about it is it means that the full-time members aren't sitting next to all of the exact same people every single day. They've got flex desks right next to them, which means that people who are dropping in for that day and different people each day are going to end up next to them. And for flex members, they're not going to end up sitting in the exact same place with the exact same people all the time. They might have their favorite spot, but if they come in that day and someone's already there, they're going to choose something else. So little bits of choice architecture to help people sit down in a place where maybe they're next to somebody they haven't met before. And then what we've done on the the full-time member side of things to really reinforce that, hey, introduce yourself kind of culture is... Most of our full-time members really want to get to know the person who just sat down next to them. So if you come in for the first time and the second time, the third time, and the person you sit down next to goes out of their way to say hello and introduce themselves, welcome, you know, I haven't seen you here before, or I haven't seen you in a while, welcome back, that sends the signal of, oh, people like it when I come in and sit by them. People like it when I say hello. So maybe when somebody new sits down next to me, I can do the same thing. And creating that kind of experience on an ongoing basis takes quite a bit of cultivating and reminding every new person who comes in needs to sort of hear a spiel about all of this, even though we've said it a million times. And often people need to be reminded of it. You know, people will express a concern about something going on in the office. And almost consistently, the root of that concern is they haven't taken even a moment to get to know the person that they're sort of in conflict with. And so when we remind them, hey, do you even know the name of the person who you have a problem with? And they say, well, no. And I say, why don't you get to know that person's name? And because if you guys know each other, you, you probably are going to be less likely to interrupt each other or do things that disrupt each other because you know you're an actual person. And it's a simple, subtle little thing that just reminds people, hey, the people around you are here to get work done too. The people who are here are here for the exact same reason that you are. So whatever you're getting out of this is really good to give to your neighbors as well. Now, I, I want to kind of uh, see if we can aim for a little bit more of the, the collaboration stuff. It sounds like, you know, you, you go to a co-working space and you have you have opportunities to get to know people and to interact with people and things like that. And the thing is, is that, you know, once you've kind of gotten to know somebody and you feel like you want to collaborate with them on a little bit more long-term basis or something, how, how do you start to formulate that so that it works for everybody? Uh, that's an awesome question and a very tough starting point for people. The biggest issue, and I think the biggest reason why a lot of collaborations go wrong, and actually, if I take even a step back from that, 
I think a lot of people avoid collaboration because we've got scars from school projects <laughs> where we were assigned to a group of people and were given <laughs> a task. And at some point, either we got a bad grade because somebody didn't pull their weight or the only way we got a good grade was by pulling the weight for what felt like everybody else. And that's not collaboration. That's oh, I never had that happen. No, ever. Oh no, <laughs> okay. I don't know how well, that feels at all. Your lab partners, Chuck. Uh, <laughs> and so those scars are very real. And I think the thing that they have in common with professional, you know, work-related collaborations too, when you get assigned to a team and now you all have to do a task, is it's all about the task. Uh, if it's all about the task at hand, when the task is over, whether it's good or bad, uh, what are you left with? Well, nothing, no guarantees really versus making the goal of getting something out of this as individuals. If you go into a collaboration with the goal of learning something, for instance, you're more guaranteed to get something out of it than if you go in to make it just about the work that needs to be done. So that's one of the, the angles that I think you can take is approaching somebody from a perspective of it's not just that I need a skill that you have, but I really admire the way you do something. Can you show me like, would you be willing to help teach me? And obviously I want to bring you into this because it's going to be mutually beneficial, but know that I'm in this because regardless of how this project goes, I really want to learn from you. I think it's a, a very healthy way to start a collaboration versus I have a project and I can't do it without you. Um, because th at that point, there's a whole lot of pressure and a whole lot of places that don't feel very good. I think another missing component of collaborations is an understanding, and it's very much in line with what I just said, is having a, an understanding of what everybody involved really wants to get out of this. And that's sort of a prerequisite conversation that's tough to have because I think people just are afraid to be totally honest. But collaboration requires everyone be honest about what they want to get out of it. Because as soon as somebody's actions and their words don't match, everybody can tell. And they might not know why things are wrong, but that's when projects start feeling kind of nasty and gnarly is because somebody said they were going to do something or they said they wanted to do something, but they just don't follow through. And the last tip that I would give for collaboration, and this could be one-on-one -on -one collaboration, group collaboration, I learned many times in the hard way that when you set a goal or a deadline for somebody else, you are setting yourself up for disappointment and making it very easy for them to disappoint you. I like to set a bearing, a direction, and instead ask them where they would like to go have them actually set the goal and go from there that way it's their goal that they're they're choosing it's only themselves that they can let down again all of that is built on a foundation of they're willing to be honest about where they want to be where they want to go could you give an example of the kinds of collaborations you're talking about? So it's a little bit more rooted in specifics. Because yeah. it's, it's hard to tell if these sorts of collaborations are things where people have like a, a side hustle that they're looking for help with, or if this is actually like, I've got a paid client and I need some design help because I'm a developer. Let's collaborate on this and you'll get paid. Sure. I mean, and I've seen examples of all of those. So I can try and give a, a couple of them and, and maybe paint a clearer picture for you. 
one of my favorites uh, is actually a fun story because the guy who's sort of the main character in this story, his name is Parker, started at our co-working space as an intern with, and I believe he would agree, qualify as almost no marketable skills. So he he definitely was not the kind of person who was going to be approached because he was a great designer or copywriter or programmer. And that was part of why he wanted to be an intern at Indie Halls because he wanted to figure out what he did want to pursue. And while he was there, he got to watch a lot of people work, watch a lot of people do what they do. He tried a lot of things. And remember, he's a beginner at all of the things that he's trying. At the same time, he's active in helping run things related to the community. One of the sort of sub-communities that was bubbling up within Indie Hall was uh, the IDGA, the International Game Developer Association, was hosting their monthly chapter meetings because a number of their members were members of our community as well, and they were looking for a place to gather once a month. And so Parker started hanging out at those meetings and meeting some of the folks there as well and became good friends with a number of them, one of them uh, whose name was Jake O'Brien. And Parker and Jake uh, would just get to talking about mobile games and game ideas. And Jake had a couple of successful, uh, small successful, but successful games in, in the App Store at the time. And essentially, Jake said to Parker, you know, your some of your game ideas are really good. Have you ever actually made a game before? And Parker said no. And Jake said, well, what can you do? <laughs> what skills do you have? And Parker sort of offhandedly said, well, I can I can draw. And Jake said, well, do you do digital illustration ever? And Parker said, I think, I mean, I can learn and set a goal for himself to learn enough digital illustration to turn his artistic skills into something valuable that they could work on together. And they didn't have a specific game that or even an idea that Parker brought to Jake or Jake brought to Parker. And they actually started doing games for hire. So take this through the different stages for other people where, you know, there was some local companies wanted to create a, a game for, for marketing their company and things like that. And they would hire Jake and Parker to come up with a game concept. Parker would design it and Jake would implement it and they would be paid as, as consultants. They were freelancers. And what they learned through that process was they really liked working together. They had a chemistry, which I think is really, really important for collaboration. Uh, if it feels forced, there's a good chance that there, things are going to get worse, not better. The, the chemistry is really valuable. And that chemistry, I think, was possible because they had gotten to know each other before they started working together. And the, as the freelance projects got bigger and bigger, their experience in working together got better and better, and their skills improved as well. Parker was practicing. He had a motivation to get better at what he was doing because it was to support his partner in this as well, in addition to his own personal goals. And what was cool was slowly over time, they started making their, after, you know, like an hour of their afternoon, well, start with their evenings. Then they were able to creep into 30 minutes or an hour of their afternoon and start working on a game of their own and launch a game in the app store. And the first game of their own was not super successful financially, but it was the proof to them that working together was what they wanted to pursue. And sort of, again, this is the, the the longest job interview ever, but it's the thing that when missing so many collaborations fall apart when things get tough. And their second game, which is a game called Domino, uh, which is the leading turn-by-turn -turn dominoes game in the App Store. So it's like 
words with friends, but for dominoes. Pulled the, ended up pulling Parker out of that internship. He was able to fund the, you know, fund his lifestyle with the bit of freelancing and then domino as it grew. And then they started hiring people. And the entire business partnership and relationship that evolved from the freelancing towards the product was all founded on that base of we actually like working together. And I think that's so often missing from collaboration. And I, and I, they, I know they will say, and I've gotten to see the entire story all the way through, that that relationship that they had was the thing that not only helped them be successful when things are going well, but here's the thing that people don't think about when they're collaborating is how are you going to support each other when, when things go terribly? Uh, if people are only in it for when the work is doing what, when the work is going well, the collaboration's not going to go well. So when, when Domino has, you know, a down month or when their advertising revenue, uh, a deal falls through, when they have to figure out something new, when they have to bring on a new teammate, when they have to, they just recently moved into their own office, so they've continued to grow. Each one of these difficult points has been more, more successful because they collaborate. They don't simply work together for sort of the sake of the company. Uh, so I always think a lot of collaboration is sort of like the equivalent of staying, you know, staying married for the, for the kids in a way where it's a collaboration, a true partnership in business, I think is just as complicated, if not more complicated to undo than a marriage in a lot of ways. And so I think approaching it with the same level of seriousness, both in the dating and courtship side of things, getting to know the people that you want to work with versus just adding a partner to your life is what can lead to uh, greater successes. There's lots of other much smaller scale examples of people simply saying, I need to get a thing done. Like right before we jumped on this call today, I got a, a message from one of our members, uh, Christine. And Christine is part of a duo, two women who run an independent publishing company that they started after they met each other at Indie Hall. They came in doing two very different things. Her partner, Amanda, was uh, doing custom wedding and greeting cards. And Christine was a freelance editor, uh, copywriter, and things like that. And it was over lunch that they both learned that they spoke and practiced speaking Chinese. And so they created an event that essentially was just for the two of them, although it was open to other folks. Uh, and some people came periodically called Chinese Lunch where they would practice speaking Chinese to each other over lunch. And in some of those conversations, they learned that they had all of these other interests and passions and things they really cared about, big ambitions and things that they locked away because they always thought, I could never do that. And when they realized that they both wanted to do that, and that being a publisher, I want to publish books. I want to publish books that publishers won't take on because I think these books need to be published. Being a boutique publisher is an extremely hard business to get into. Neither of them had done it before, but they gave that through the relationship they built, they were able to give each other the confidence to say, let's take a go at this. And they have since published two original works, I believe it is. Their first book was a very successfully kickstarted reprint of the Legends of Sherlock Holmes. So Sherlock Holmes stories post Moriarty, beautifully illustrated by Amanda, because remember she was illustrating custom greeting cards and edited and typeset by Christine. It's all public domain. Uh, so basically they created this beautifully typeset book 
uh, an illustrated book for Sherlock fans everywhere and were crazy, crazy successful. They've continued to publish, continue to publish. The business keeps growing. The thing that's amazed me about Aman and Christine is how they both collaborate with each other spills over into how they collaborate with other people outside of their core team. So you have a bit business partnership that's formed. But I'll take this in a direction that maybe people don't think about. And I'll, I'm going to bring up interns. We don't think about interns as potential collaborators, really. They're, they're grunts, right? They're going to help us do things that need doing. They're going to have the privilege of learning along the way. And I'm going to have someone who, who, uh, is able to do junior work for me. And the way Amanda and Christine even approached their interns was as collaborators. They really went out of their way to take these college students to understand what their passions were, what they dreamed about doing and say, well, this is a platform for you to learn and try it. And we're here to make it safe for you to screw it up and fail. That's what you're here to do because that's how we got this far. And also along the way, encourage those interns to make use of the co-working experience and say, you're here to work for us as interns. But in those same moments where you're going to go grab a cup of coffee, you should get to know the other people here and ask them questions and learn things. So when the internship was over, those students not just learned what they learned from this, these two women who run in a, this, this boutique publishing company, this indie publishing company, but they also learned a new way of thinking about being a professional, which prior to graduation is an extraordinarily valuable lesson. So bringing people more closely into your work orbit and inviting them into your process and being generous and sharing and teaching and asking people to share what they know, I think are all components to this process that make things feel more collaborative versus simply working together to get the work done. I, I feel like you're using the, the term collaboration as a, a catch-all for people spending time together and working together and sort of not only putting together interesting products and work, but also growing personally. And yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, okay, and, and I'm not saying any of that is wrong. So here I'm, I'm going to pull a little bit of uh, academic rank, which makes me, like, of course, completely cut off from the real world since you've been actually running a collaborative <laughs> institution. But, like, my PhD dissertation was all about collaboration. And so I feel I feel like my advisor, who would never listen to the show anyway, would personally come and strangle me for more than the normal reasons he would want to for not pointing this out. <laughs> so in, in the academic world, there's this distinction between collaboration and cooperation. And cooperation means that the two of us are sort of working in parallel with one another. You can think of it as like, you know, on, on a, maybe on a certain software projects like the designer and the developer. And every so often they sort of check in with one another. But for the most part, they're working independently. And that's cooperation. Collaboration is more, we are intertwined. We are, I cannot move forward without you and you cannot move forward without me. I mean, I think you used the word magic before. I definitely think there's magic in that sort of collaboration because people are able to do, and, and you, I, say, I think you also expressed this beautifully, like you're able to do much more with these other people than you could possibly do on your own. And you're also learning a lot more than you could on your own. And, and yet I feel like for all the fantastic stuff that's involved in collaboration, you seem, and, and I think you're putting together this amazing environment in which collaboration sort of may well happen and is encouraged, but it's also like, you're also saying, however you guys want to work together, that's fantastic. And I don't feel like it's, at least from your description, you're pointing any one type, in the direction of one type of collaboration, one, you're, you're sort of almost a, a matchmaking service, like a unmasked, I don't know, group dating matchmaking service, 
rather than pointing people to one specific type of way of working together. So, and that's an interesting distinction. I, I think the way I like to look at it is I would define the Indie Hall experience, the coding experience as a community of practice. And I think the mm-hmm. thing that is being practiced is the the act and art of collaboration. Because to your point, it, it, there's there's more than one facet to it. Um, I think that intertwinedness is sort of what you come to achieve as the work progresses, as the relationship progresses. I think you're totally right in terms of facilitating an experience where people are more likely to match themselves. We don't do the actual matching for them. And that's a very intentional choice. You're you're 100% on point there. I think part of that is because if I had gone out of my way to say that I know who is the best match for who, we would miss so many of the matches that have been made. The the ways that people have added to each other in that deeply intertwined way, in those serendipitous and often unexpected ways, are the result of getting people comfortable with expressing what they're working on, how they're working on it, sharing early and often, sort of starting with those touch points, um, the, the, the cooperation end of the spectrum, rather than look at them as opposites, I would really look at it as mm. a continuum and say, we help people start where they're comfortable and move them along or perhaps help them move each other along. The effect of the experience that is probably the most interesting to me is how much of that comes from other peers. The amount of hands-on guidance that leads to people actually coming together to work on a project, to create a business, to succeed together does not come by my hand or the hands of my team as matchmakers, as you described. Honestly, I think it's more in the realm of, and this is where the community of practice thing comes back in, it's more about knowledge management. It's how do you present people with the right opportunity with the right person in the right context at the right time so that they will choose it for themselves because, and maybe the fact that I haven't brought up choice up until this point is a factor of it. Back to those scars from collaboration, forced collaborations where the collaboration is imposed on you generally don't feel as good and they are more limited and less successful versus having an opportunity to choose a collaboration are far more likely to to be lasting. Okay, yeah, and, and actually, I mean, this stuff, the, the, so I mean, I was interviewing people for my dissertation and then, like, what sort of collaborations were they doing in a certain kind of software modeling environment so that as a prelude to my creating a, a an online collaboration system for them to actually do it or to do it more. And so I asked them, well, do you collaborate? And many of them would say no. And I said, well, why not? And they'd say, well, we're really nervous. And some of them were worried about IP sorts of things, but some of them were nervous about how just like, you know, they basically were nervous about being embarrassed. Yeah. That if they, if they stick their necks out, then people are going to make fun of them or people are going to think less of them when, you know, everyone's got alpha and beta and even worse levels oh, yeah. out there. And it sounds like, I think, I think you're onto something there where you're saying, let's try to get people working together on something to build up that trust so that they'll get over the embarrassment and so that then they're more likely to have the deeper collaboration that would otherwise not happen. Show me an effective collaboration that does not require someone to be vulnerable to somebody else. They don't exist. So creating that environment, and I think a big part of this is also why the, the community of practice, why this is being in a network environment is so valuable is 
when you get started, you're somewhere on that spectrum that we were talking about of how comfortable with this, how experienced with this, how willing to be vulnerable and stick your neck out like you said you would be. And if you've never done it before and if all you've ever seen is failures or challenges and struggles in collaboration, it's going to take even more work for you to go out, be willing to stick your neck out. So being able to have sort of a generational element to the network of People being able to observe other people putting their neck out, asking for help, showing off that alpha or beta or worse, even putting out a half-baked idea before I've even done anything with it. That's actually one of the my favorite counterintuitive lessons for building that, that culture is being willing to share a half-baked idea before you've thought it all the way through. No actual product, no actual alpha or beta yet. It's just... It's, uh, I got this sort of like an inkling. One of my favorite books is from uh, an author named Stephen Johnson. Uh, it's called Where Good Ideas Come From. And in the book, he talks about this thing that he frames, the, t- the name he gives it is a slow hunch. And it's essentially a half-baked idea. And it takes through periods of time of renaissance and creativity throughout history, there have been places where people with half-baked ideas, slow hunches as he called them, would gather. These are salons in Paris and cafes in London and, and writers workshops in ancient Greek times and things like this, where people would show up with a half-baked idea and get used to the idea of sticking their neck out. And when two half-baked ideas sort of complement one another and add up not to a two plus two equals four, but a two plus two equals five, a two plus two equals eight or a 10, that's what we believe is that flash in the pan moment of genius. But that can't happen unless those two half-baked ideas from two people willing to be vulnerable and sharing something incomplete are willing to put them out into the room. That takes not just guts, but I think it also takes a willingness to see somebody else do it, succeed and go, you know what? If they did it, I can do it. And that's, I think, one of the greatest powers of being in a community of people who have that, that sort of perpetual motion is that the more successes that are visible, the more likely new successes are to become visible. That's sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in a very positive and virtuous way. Hmm. So my deal is is that I've thought for a while about starting a co-working space. And the reason I didn't was more or less what you talked about at the beginning of the show, where you basically said, what's the point if it's just an, uh, just an office to go to? Yeah. And that was my thing was, you know, I'm pretty comfortable at home. And if it's just somewhere else for me to go work, then I'll just go to the, you know, the local cafe or something. So how do you create that place where people can go and get that kind of collaboration? So, I mean, for your initial thought of just going to the cafe is like you're already 90% of the way there. The thing that we did and many people have done and sort of like following our lead was doing that on purpose with other people to instead of just going to the cafe by yourself to say ahead of time, hey, on Friday from this time to this time, I'm going to go work from this cafe or this Panera bread or this, you know, basically anywhere that has Wi-Fi and will let you spend the day without it being awkward and terrible. Go there and see who shows up and don't just do it one time. Like remember what I said about the night owls thing took would take a long time sort of build up momentum. We did it for like seven months before we were at a point where we even thought that, you know, having a place to do this every day would be worth it. That's all a pretty stark contrast to what often you see people do. And then what you don't see is how much they struggle. 
where they set up an office and then later go out and figure out, all right, I have to find the people that are going to hang out in this place with me. And even if you go out and you ask people beforehand, are you, would you come to a co-working space? They'll say, yeah, sure, that sounds great. And then as soon as you open the doors and have a price tag on it, you know, you, you've got crickets. So I think doing a low to no cost, regular, casual co-working event where you've got a place to go. And this can also be like in someone's living room or a public library. I mean, Wi-Fi is in so many places that where you do it it matters a whole lot less than doing it on some sort of regular interval and letting people know that they can come do it with you. You can co-work anywhere. You don't need a co-working space to do it. And and we did it for the better part of nine months before we had a co-working space. Are there advantages to having a dedicated co-working space? Of course. But I, I can say with confidence that you can get a vast majority of the quality experience, even with an imperfect works setting, when it comes to the, you know, I just need a day where I'm out of the house and I've got some other people around me. Uh, it can still be a heads down work day. You can still have those moments of breaks where you, you get to know people. And the best thing about it, honestly, for me in that process going through it was, in doing it on, on a you know once a week basis, people come out of the woodwork, and and so long as people that are coming are having a good time, word will slowly start to travel. And I met people that were quite literally, not literally, literally in my own backyard, but within blocks of where I lived, who did things in similar related and different industries, but we all worked from home that I never would have met. There's no networking event that could bring us together. So for all the events there are for, you know, entrepreneurs and for freelancers and for, uh, for a particular text, you know, uh, uh, technology or, or programming language or whatever it is, I've never seen anything that's specifically for people who work at home to not work at home for an afternoon, except for this. So that's where I would generally suggest, regardless of where you are in the world, rather than start a co-working space, start that and be willing to do it for three months, four months, six months. And at the end of six months, take an inventory of who's around. Is this actually better than being at home? It might not be, in which case a co-working space definitely wouldn't be. And maybe the solution is something different. Maybe it's something uh, virtual, like a, you know, a, a Slack chat or a weekly Google Hangout or something like that. Co-working spaces are just one way to get that fix. A very good one, but also not the best for everyone. I'm glad you said that because it strikes me that this is definitely not for everyone. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could, are there traits that the dear listener could look for in themselves to know whether or not they would be a good fit for a co-working space? Because I, I don't think it's obvious. I don't, I don't think, just speaking for myself, like I go to Starbucks all the time, uh, but what you're describing does not sound attractive to me personally, but I do go to Starbucks all the time. So for people who end up being really, really uh, in love with Indie Hall, is there anything in common that people could look for to see if they should maybe push themselves out of their comfort zone and give one of these a try or maybe even start one? Yeah, that's one of my favorite questions. I'm so glad you asked it. If there's one theme across the people who, whether they thought they were going to get a lot of it, a lot out of it at the beginning or they did not or they were skeptical, is that they were curious. And I think if you're a curious person, if you find yourself a curious person and, and what you're curious about, maybe I should explore to you're, you're curious about other people. If you have any degree of curiosity about 
what other people do, how they work, uh, what you could learn from how they work. If you have any willingness to share what you do, then this could be a really valuable experience. The thing that I think a lot of people struggle with the most is how am I supposed to get any work done, right? If, if this is all about interacting with people, how am I, how is this possibly going to make me more productive? And the thing that I think an unexpected skill that you can learn is an element of self-management. One of the two things that we hear most often when people come into Indie Hall is, uh, wow, it's quieter in here than I expected it to be. Because most of the time, the only thing you hear is a little bit of light music, um, maybe, you know, just a little bit of keyboard tapping, walking around. It's not, it's not noisy considering there are literally 120 some odd people, you know, sitting around and, and, and doing things. The other thing that people often say is they'll, they'll say something like, I wasn't sure how this was going to get fit into my day, but I got more work done today than I have in the last however long. And I think the reason for both of those things are the majority of the time, it's quiet heads down work. When you get up and you, again, you, you walk around to stretch your legs, you grab a glass of water, a cup of coffee, or you go out and walk around the block, whatever it might be, you take those moments of break to potentially interact with somebody else. And they can literally be that. They can be moments. The other side of it, though, is no one's going to be upset when you say, I have to go back to work. You're not blowing anybody off. And in fact, if somebody were to come over to you and say, hey, you know, I have a question for you. It's totally okay and normal for you to say, I, I can't talk right now. I have work to do. Uh, there's a few different ways that that can be uh, signaled even beforehand. You know, there's there's this headphone rule that that's pretty uh, popular. Sort of two headphones in is don't bother me. Uh, one headphone in that's you can say you say something but keep it brief and headphones off is sort of like I'm sort of like casually working it's not a big deal if you come over and and ask me a question or or have something to say so i think where people struggle the most is being willing to say no because that feels like you're being rude perhaps but the thing to remember is everyone is there for the same reason as you which is also to get some work done so having that you know this goes back to the relationship trust, communication. If you're not willing to talk through, you know, ha have a conversation and, and it doesn't even need to be a conversation. If you're not willing to say, I can't talk right now, then maybe then it's not going to work for you. But there's so many other values you can get out of it. And it's so easy to walk in and really sort of ride the wave of everyone else's energy for the day is probably the biggest thing that the people get out of it, I think, is it requires no direct interaction. It's more like a room full of people who've got got good stuff going on. And if anything, you feel a little guilty if you don't. And so you got to find something to do, something to be productive, actually be productive. And then when you do take a break, you take it with a couple of other people that spent the last few hours being super productive. And you all sort of celebrate that together. So I think it's it requires a degree of self-management that a lot of people aren't super comfortable with. But I'll tell you this, that kind of self-management is insanely valuable as an independent, a freelancer, entrepreneur anyway. If the world is endlessly distracting to you, it is hard to be productive in any environment. You need to close yourself off. So I think it could be really valuable training wheels 
to learn how to manage yourself in a way that is effective where small interruptions don't throw you and ruin your entire day. You need to want that, though. I can't force it on you. And and back to your point, like, there's plenty of people that come and try it and it's not for them. And that's okay, too. Or think about it this way. Sometimes it's task oriented. What kind of work you're doing, the setting needs to reflect. So if you are doing days of heads down focus, do not interrupt me or else you will ruin my day work, a co-working space is probably not the best place for it. But if you're doing more creative brainstorming stuff where you kind of need some stimulation to be inspired and think a little bit differently than you usually do, maybe those are the days where you go in. Another way I like to frame it, which is the complete contrast of that, is think about your admin days. Like the one or two days out of the month where you're doing paperwork and invoicing and stuff that's like sucks. If you could be in a room full of people who were doing awesome work, inspiring work, and when you took a break from your freelancing invoicing, you had someone to talk to, even if it was to simply say, ugh, invoices, or (laughs) someone who gets it, that can turn your crappiest day out of the month into a really awesome day to look forward to. That's going to be my co-working day instead of my lousy, boring admin day. So think about your work sort of in, 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 in units of what you're doing and how you do it best and say, are there places where we're a little bit outside of the box inspiration is going to help me more? Maybe those are the days that you choose to do your co-working versus making it, um, you know, a full-time thing. That makes sense. I could imagine a, a heavy dev day. I would choke someone if they interrupted me. But if I was doing invoices, that's completely different. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think being willing to and this is something that as the world is moving away from full time employment towards freelancing and and contracting and things like that, no one's taught us these self management skills. Like, where do you go to learn how to choose where you're going to work based on the kind of work you're doing that day? Or even where do you learn how to work from home? I, I get that a lot from people. I mean, I think all of us have experience working from home. The ones that work full-time jobs at an employer and have to, you know, commute in, they, you often hear the, I could never do that. I could, I would just be so distracted by the laundry or whatever. And that is an interesting thing to me is that sort of lack of, like, how do you learn that? You know, how do you find out if you, you know, you're not going to quit your job to find out if you can work from home. Like, it, it would be interesting to, uh, I don't know, it just feels like a deficiency that there's no, there's no way to kind of try that out. Maybe something like Indie Hall is, you know, working from Indie Hall one day a week, even while you're at a full-time job, if you can get away with that, would give you some kind of like indication. I don't know. It's, that's, uh, I, I, I never I thought of that before. I mean, I, I work on site with a lot of companies doing training. And uh, when I have lunch with people, the two questions I'm asked most often are, number one, how is our cafeteria versus the others? And the second one is, what is it like to be self-employed? To them, it's just a mystery as to how someone could not go to the same building every day, work with these same people every day, and work on the same project that a boss has given to you for a long time. It, it, it's like just seems bizarre to them. By contrast, I said to my kids at some point, it's probably about two, three years ago, you know, most grownups, you know, go to the same office every day and work with the same people every day in the same city every day. They were like, no, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's my kids, too. Right. It's all a matter of what you're used to and what you see around you as what you think of as normal. 
I think it's interesting. So my girlfriend is a chef and works an unusual chef job in that she does not work restaurant hours. She works through a corporate contract company. But, you know, working in a kitchen, you, you have to go to the kitchen to do the work that you do. And she's a chef manager, so she runs a team. She has all this business experience as well. And so she, she's got she knows a lot about the business, the management, and the culinary side of things. And in the last two years, she's started doing her own business in what's become her off-season because she now works for university. So the spring, summer months, and she does uh, farmer's markets and things like that, creating her own food products. She makes pulled pork and and chicken and homemade sausages and sells those. And the discipline of getting up in the morning and choosing what you work on that day, even though she was a manager, she was, she was not, she did get stuff that she, she got like a, um, you know, you have to hit certain marks and things like that. You know, she was mostly the one giving the instruction versus receiving it. So she knows how to give instruction to other people. Giving instruction to yourself is a totally different ball of wax. Um, we've had lots of conversations about it and, and sort of, you know, how do you learn it? Again, I think it's in that realm of like tacit knowledge. It's like riding a bicycle. You can't read a book about riding a bicycle and then be able to jump on a bike and ride it. You need to do it surrounded by somebody or rather with the assistance of somebody who you trust, who you've seen do it. So clearly they know how to do it. And you, you believe that they're not going to let you fall and break your neck. Uh, metaphorically speaking, perhaps. So uh, yet another vote in, in, in my mind for these, these collab, these, these co-working communities, because even if you never work directly with somebody, if you're surrounded by people who you know have done what you're trying to do and they somehow succeeded without dying, that your odds are pretty good. And if you go one step further and, <laughs> and they, they, and you can turn to them and say, I'm stuck or I'm about to break my neck or whoops, I broke my neck. And they can say, it's okay. I've done that too. You're you know, not the first. You won't be the last. Here's how to get out of the situation. To me, that's the most important thing you said of the entire conversation. That's like a critical point. And you actually brought it up earlier, but it didn't click with me, which is that working around other people that do have a lifestyle like you, they might not be doing the same thing, but have a lifestyle like you gives you confidence. Big time. That Big time. is critical. I've seen people join Indie Hall on our lower cost memberships. We have a, a community membership that is only virtual. So we have our, our Slack chat, uh, our email discussion list and events. So basically a purely social membership, um, with sort of access to the clubhouse, uh, without necessarily coming out and work at the day. And a lot of them join because they want to do something like what they have seen people who work at Indie Hall do. They want to be exposed to it. They want to basically have a point of reference to prove to themselves that they can work up the guts to quit the job, that those people are perfectly normal. Their days are, are can be difficult to, you know, basically get an honest look into the day in the life of when you see that. I think you said the word is confidence is spot on. It's terrifying to leave something that you've known how to do and go do something new. But when, when you've got someone there, even if they don't say it directly to you saying you can do this because I did this, the willingness to take that leap. I've seen so many people take the leap, succeed, 
And afterwards I said, what made the difference? And they said, seeing other people do it and not, not hurt themselves quite literally and, and succeed. If they can do it, I can do it is like the best version of monkey see monkey do I could possibly imagine. Yeah. A generation of people working in their basements really makes that hard. And, uh, I think that's a really, uh, that's the most compelling argument I can think of. That's a great well, one. And think about the, the fact that what exposure do we have to freelancers and entrepreneurs online? For the most part, it's how you doing? I'm crushing it. I'm doing great. You know, scoring a new client, making more money, all this. Like people don't see the tough stuff. And so they either assume it's all sunshine and lollipops or they refuse to believe that it's all sunshine and lollipops. And therefore all those people out there are liars. So having more, I think, honest exposure to the difficulties when people back to, you know, sticking your, your, your neck out there for someone to say, I'm stuck on something and need help. There, like there's so many layers to that statement. I think it's really powerful. It's the willingness to admit that you don't know something. It's the willingness to ask, even if you don't know if someone has the answer and the willingness to listen when someone gives you advice. Those are all really hard things that a lot of people do not have a lot of experience with. And having an environment that loves to be available is uh, really, really powerful. I would love to get more information about how to set something like this up uh, from you, like, you know, just kind of the logistics, um, sure. how big the co-working space is, where to get cheap office equipment, stuff like that, you know, if you decide that you're going to go and build a place like this. Yeah, so so some, like, tactical stuff related to getting your actual, your own yeah, co-working space. Yeah, in about three minutes so we can do picks. Okay, perfect, can do. So where we start, I'm, I already talked about until you've got a critical mass of people who yes. are already gathering on a regular basis, then if you do not have this, none of the stuff I'm about to say applies until you've got a core of eight to 10 people that are committed to the cause and not just say, yeah, co-working is a nice idea. But the people who are literally calling you, you know, sending you a message in Slack and saying, when is this going to be available until that point? None of this stuff applies. But once you do have that point, you've got a really exciting process ahead. And think about it less like opening an office and more like I, I love the the reference of like community barn raising in um, I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania, so like out in Lancaster. And you're not opening an office for a bunch of people. You're all going to come together and raise that office together and for each other and for the people who are going to come, so on and so forth. So. Think about the entire process itself as an exercise in collaboration, in deciding where it's going to be. So that's a, a common first stumbling block is I can't find the perfect location. Well, first of all, there is no perfect location. The, the place that you think is a perfect location is likely to be a mirage. The most important facet of picking a place is are people willing to go there, which can be challenging, especially in places where people are used to driving. So cities and 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 parts of the world where it's more of a driving culture versus a public transportation culture can make that challenging. One tip I'll give might be to uh, uh, to choose a place that is equally inconvenient to most people versus a place that is convenient to a few. That's counterintuitive, but if somebody feels like, well, everyone's got to drive about the same distance, it's worth it to them, it might be worth it to me, is a totally different message than well, you all work there, but you live five minutes away. I live 20 minutes away, so screw you guys. That, that sort of thing in terms of making a choice. The other thing is focus on a landlord who is just as interested in this sort of thing. Maybe not just as interested, but is in supportive of the idea. 
having a great landlord is going to help through the tough parts as well. Don't treat it like a transaction. Treat it like a relationship, like everything else I've been saying. In terms of actually getting it off the ground, financing, lots of different ways you can go. Another reason to have that core membership up front is because you can, without even needing to go a formal crowdfunding route, although you can, what we did, and this was in pre-crowdfunding days, I'm going to be a crowdfunding hipster for a moment, I just went to the people that had said, we want this, we want to be a part of this, and said, cool, I need you to commit to actually joining if you can prepay your membership for a few months, that would help even more. Uh, it would send a signal of I'm willing to be in it for at least this long. And so we had people prepaying memberships three, you know, three to six months in advance, give us capital up front. Obviously, that creates a potential cash flow challenge. So when the door is open, you need to keep that momentum up. But for us, we were able to get about half of the upfront costs covered by membership repayment and I came in with the other half. And actually I have a blog post that I can give you guys the link to that breaks down all of those costs, where the money came from, what it was spent on, both at the initial opening of our original space, which was only 1800 square feet. So room for, you know, 15, 18 desks, maybe a couple more if you're willing to get cramped. I would advise highly against starting large. I would start small with the shortest term lease that you can get with a landlord that wants to work with you and opportunities and has opportunities to grow. So we outgrew our 1800 square foot space, moved into 5,000 square feet, outgrew that a couple of years later. And at this point we have uh, just shy of 10,000 square feet. But if we'd started with 10,000 square feet, we never would have been able to stay in business versus where what we were able to do is break even inside of two months. Uh, and at that point we're able to make money, put away money so that as new costs are incurred, as the community wants to do new things, uh, we can say yes because their money is available. The last thing I'll say in terms of buying things is buy what you actually need, which is surprisingly less than you think. People will say they need all kinds of things. Bare bones co-working, desk, chair, power, internet, hopefully a roof uh, over your head. But all of the extras, even you know, printers, coffee machines, like you can print at the printer at a copy shop nearby. You can get coffee at a coffee shop. Like lots of things that you think you need up front that you can get later as you build critical mass, but do not spend money on things until you absolutely need it. Furniture wise, you can't go wrong with Ikea. Hopefully you've got an Ikea near you. If you don't, uh, do a little bit of searching online. There's some places that will help you do bulk Ikea ordering and then you, you're paying freight, which obviously adds some costs. Um, but I've got a bunch of blog posts that I can give you guys in terms of links to look at some of the, the startup uh, lessons and cost breakdowns and basically how to how to dodge lots of bullets. All right. Well, there's some great stuff there and I'm going to have to go back through it and kind of, I think, maybe build just a little guide or idea of how I'm going to do it if I do it. Sure. But let's go ahead and do picks. Eric, do you have some picks? Yeah, so I got a quick one. Um, there's a Tim Ferriss podcast episode called Lazy, a manifesto. It's I think it's a snippet from an audiobook. It's like 10 or 15 minutes long. Pretty interesting. Some good stuff in there. That's it. All right. Jonathan, do you have some picks for us? Yes, I do have a pick. It is a blog post from Kai Davis who wrote about how he hired his first assistant. And this is a real-life in-person assistant, not a virtual assistant. But it is so amazingly easy and it's so clever and 95% automated that if you're thinking about hiring an assistant or a virtual assistant, you should check out Kai Davis's post on how to hire a part-time employee. It is pure gold. 
All right. Reuven, what are your picks? So last year I recommended a podcast from Slate called Working, where they interviewed people about their day-to-day jobs and how they go about them. And this year it's back with a second season, and it is even more brilliant. Really, it's it's fascinating to hear the variety of people and, and how they work. Definitely worth listening to. Another podcast, which probably many of you have heard of, is Startup. Um, and this year they're following this um, startup called Dating Ring. And I have to say it is also better than the first season and kind of horrifying. And I say horrifying because the latest episode is all about how ridiculously horrifyingly sexist the whole Silicon Valley fundraising ecosystem is. So I would definitely advise people to listen to it, um, even if you're not going to listen to the rest of the series. It's quite an eye-opener. And there's a similar blog post from one of the startup's founders describing in greater detail what she's gone through in trying to raise funds. Anyway, those are my picks for this week. All right. Um, I've got a few podcasts that I want to pick. The first one is called Code Newbie. If you're a coder and you're interested in uh, just discussions with general programmers, this one's done by Saran Yitbark, uh, who is on Ruby Rogues, and they are awesome. Another one is one that Ruben's picked on the show before. Ask me another. It's fun to listen to. Uh, it's just uh, word games and stuff like that. And then, oh, I want to remind everybody to go sign up for Ruby Remote Conf. That's rubyremoteconf.com if you're interested in that. And Alex, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have a couple. Since you guys are rattling off podcasts, I've been loving Reply All, which was the second podcast from the same crew that did Startup. It's all these sort of like quirky, weird, like internet culture stories. And the the episodes have been overwhelmingly just fascinating and some of them kind of nostalgic because they're things that I think a lot of us grew up with online. The other thing that I want to share is a book uh, for anyone who's interested in uh, getting through to people who maybe are hard to get through to, whether they're clients, potential collaborators, business partners, significant others, children, parents, grandparents. Everyone has people in our lives that it's tough to it feels like you're talking to a brick wall. The book is called Just Listen by an author named Mark Goulston. And he's a clinical psychologist. He runs a family practice helping spouses communicate better and parents speak with their kids. But the reason he's famous enough to write a book is because he's also the lead hostage negotiation trainer for the FBI and uses the exact same techniques to train hostage negotiators as he does to get parents to talk to their kids and husbands to talk to their wives and vice versa. It's one of the most practical books on persuasion and quite frankly, takes it from the opposite perspective of listening and breaks it down. It's this awesome mix of neuroscience and storytelling. And every chapter is super actionable and has an exercise that you can try on yourself. So instead of trying to go all uh, pseudo psychology newbie on your husband or wife or partner, which sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Uh, you're going to use these kinds of things uh, on yourself to learn how to actually get through to your own internal conflict before you try dealing with other people. Excellent book. It's great for sales. It's great for relationships. It's great for collaboration. It rocks. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for coming, Alex. If people My pleasure. want to follow you or get a hold of you, what are the best ways to do that? So you can follow me on Twitter at Alex Hillman. Uh, you can also check out my website, which is dangerouslyawesome.com. Uh, lots of essays, a uh, mix of practical stuff and storytelling uh, related to co-working, collaboration, community building, and the like. Uh, those are probably the best two places. Oh, and uh, come in and check out my podcast as well uh, as the Coworking Weekly Show, where we're not just talking about co-working spaces, but the interactions that people have in them and what it takes to actually make that stuff possible. So come on over and check that out. 
All right. Well, thank you for coming. We'll catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash freelancers. Listeners of The Freelancer Show will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code freelancers at checkout. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.